Welcome to the Great American Shit Show. I'm your host, Stephen Vargas, and this is where we take a look at the political culture war cancer culture of a society that has lost the concept of irony and nuance. So welcome to part three of the rise of the modern GOP. We are reaching the midpoint of the series, and trust me, after this series, I will be dealing with one-off episodes or maybe a two-parter depending on the topic. This series is special because so many people in the media, both old and new, just don't want to take time to look back and connect the dots. I know that people consider history boring, but this is something that's important, especially as we begin an election year that has a moderate GOP presidential candidate looking at getting rid of entitlements, which includes Social Security and Medicaid, which many of the most ardent MAGA devotees are on, as well as national abortion bans at six weeks. None of this happens in a vacuum. It's like a cold that comes on suddenly. No. You think back to that guy in the office that had to come to work sick because his company didn't offer sick pay, and you were in the vicinity and started to notice a tickle in the throat or a sneeze here and there, and then one morning, you couldn't get out of bed and was sick. However, like the guy that infected you, there are no sick days available and you will give it to someone else. That is the modern day GOP. So let's get on with the show. On January 26, 2021, Trump supporters stormed the Capitol building in hopes of overturning the election of Joe Biden to their preferred candidate, Donald Trump. For months, Trump had been setting up his loss by claims it was an illegal election, full of fake mail-in ballots, voting machines that switched names, and a corrupt court system that was out to get him. I know your pain. I know you're hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us. It was a landslide election, and everyone knows it, especially the other side. But you have to go home now. We have to have peace. We have to have law and order. We have to respect our great people in law and order. We don't want anybody hurt. In 1964, a libertarian Republican Arizona Senator, Barry Goldwater, attempted to bring his, at the time, ultra-conservative views to the forefront of the Republican Party. Instead of laying out a platform, he set his eyes on moderates in his party and wanted them out. Well, the moderates spoke out and gave Goldwater a devastating loss. The voice of the people was heard in the land. 68 million citizens of the United States go to the polls to exercise their cherished franchise, and an overwhelming mandate is handed to Lyndon Baines Johnson, who becomes 36th President of the United States. The man who was thrust into office through the hand of tragedy captures an overwhelming percentage of the popular vote, more than 61%, a plurality over Barry Morris Goldwater of nearly 16 million ballots. It is an historical sweeping victory, approached only by that of Franklin Roosevelt in 1936. It is an election that crosses party lines, sees five states in the solid South defect to the GOP, and has political scientists wondering. After Watergate, the Republican Party struggled to find their new identity. They found it in a former governor from California who became the most popular Republican in recent history. Then a washed-up DJ decided to become a shock jock of conservatism politics. Little did anyone know 
the last link in the chain to turn the Republican Party into the party of Trump was just beginning to be forged. And that kicks off this week's episode of The Modern GOP, The Rise of Newt. In the last episode, we glossed over the intervening years of Richard Nixon to Jimmy Carter. After the Watergate scandal, the Republican Party took a major hit. After the clumsy presidency of Gerald Ford, they lost both houses of Congress and the presidency to Jimmy Carter, a former governor from Georgia. Now, as presidencies go, Carter drew a major pair of fuck-you cards. In a recession that began in the late Ford administration carried into Carter's presidency, Russia flexed their way into Afghanistan and Carter resorted to diplomacy rather than action. Unemployment was at an all-time high. OPEC embargoed oil to the U.S., which led to the gas crisis. Carter allowed the newly deposed dictator of Iran to receive cancer treatment in the United States, much to his advisor's dismay. In response, the Iranians stormed the U.S. embassy in Tehran and took hostages. If a global pandemic started during that time, it would have been a presidential royal flush. The Republicans found an opportunity to reclaim the White House in a former actor, California governor, and Goldwater supporter, Ronald Reagan. Yeah, he was a supporter of Barry in 1964. So much so that he made a campaign ad for the senator. I asked to speak to you because I'm mad. I've known Barry Goldwater for a long time. When I hear people say he's impulsive and such nonsense, I boil over. Believe me, if it weren't for Barry keeping those boys in Washington on their toes, do you honestly think our national defense would be as strong as it is? And remember, when Barry talks about the way to keep the peace, when he says that only the strong can remain free, he knows what he's talking about. And I know the wonderful Goldwater family. Do you honestly believe that Barry wants his sons and daughters involved in a war? Do you think he wants his wife to be a wartime mother? Of course not. So join me, won't you? Let's get a real leader and not a power politician in the White House. Vote for Barry Goldwater. After Goldwater's defeat, Ronald Reagan was able to do something Goldwater couldn't. Be likable. Reagan took the pillars of Goldwater's ultra-conservatism and made it popular. With his knack for being on camera and charismatic, he made Goldwater's views palatable for the country at large. Now, as we discussed in our Barry Goldwater episode, Reagan did something that Goldwater wouldn't do. Court the evangelicals. Here's what Goldwater said about Jerry Farwell when Reagan nominated Sandra Day O'Connor to the Supreme Court. The Reverend Jerry Falwell says that uh, good Christians should be opposed to Sandra O'Connor. Well, you know what I said about good Christians. <laughs> no, what you, what you say? How is that again, Senator? <laughs> well, I don't think I can use it on the air, but ass... Let us be the judge of that. <laughs> ass you, isn't a dirt. I said all good Christians should kick him in the ass. <laughs> when, when it comes to the place that these groups try to take away the power of the American citizen then I have to take exception to it. That's not tasteful. I don't like to do it, but I will oppose this abuse of constitutional power any place that I have to. Goldwater set the standard for the right's militant aversion to expanding civil rights and communism. Today, those positions are mainstream in the Republican Party. Now, prior to the 70s and 80s, the Republican Party supported the expansion of civil liberties, but former President Richard Nixon's Southern strategy to court disenchanted conservative Southern Democrats changed that. 
In conjunction with the conservative backlash of the Reagan revolution, this allowed Republicans to welcome social conservatives and religious groups disillusioned by liberal Supreme Court rulings of the 60s and 70s. Consequently, religious voters who claimed the government should actively promote Christian values held the party of small government hostage. Now, today's GOP continues to uphold the visionary social conservatism that began under Reagan while adhering to Goldwater's extreme distaste for government spending. The 2016 election saw a rock to the uh, right bear substantial fruit. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Ronald Reagan repurposed Goldwater's beliefs into a shiny new box, using Carter's disastrous term as the reason why bigger government won't work. If he had a bright red hat, I'm sure everyone would have started wearing them. Uh, you may recognize a certain phrase. The price of even a small home could be 200000 And what about their parents trying to make ends meet right now? To stop inflation, we've got to put a ceiling on federal spending. We've got to crack down on waste, and we must lower our tax rates to encourage individual productivity. In California, where I was governor for eight years, we went from near bankruptcy to financial help. We gave the taxpayers billions of dollars in tax relief, and we met the needs of our people. If we're going to stop inflation, we must do it now. Not with bigger government. It takes better government. That's what we owe ourselves and our children. That's why I'm running for president. Only one man has the proven experience we need. Ronald Reagan for president. Let's make America great again. While Carter was hemorrhaging badly in 1980, Reagan knew he would win, but it was unclear by how much. Now, Ronald Reagan won the popular vote by 8 million more votes. Reagan received over 43,900,000 votes to Carter's 35,400,000. Reagan received 489 electoral votes to Carter's 49. Due to this shellacking, it was coined the Reagan Revolution. Republicans even took the Senate while the House stayed in Democratic hands. The time has come. You've seen the map. We've looked at the figures, and NBC News now makes its projection for the presidency. Reagan is our projected winner. Ronald Wilson Reagan of California, a sports announcer, a film actor, a governor of California, is our projected winner at 8.15 Eastern standard time on this election night we have projected ronald reagan the winner now let's look back a couple of years in 1978 a young congressional candidate was about to speak at a gathering of college republicans at a holiday inn near the atlanta airport at 35 he had run for congress twice and lost both times he was on his third try and this time it would prove beneficial Newt Gingrich wasn't looking to tell the young Republicans what to do, but what they needed to do. Basically, he was looking to start a revolution. One of the biggest problems we have in the Republican Party is that we don't encourage you to be nasty, he told the group. We encourage you to be neat, obedient, and loyal, and faithful, and all those Boy Scout words, which would be great around a campfire, but are lousy in politics. To their party, for their party to succeed, Gingrich said, the next generation of Republicans would have to learn to raise hell, to stop being so nice, to realize that politics was, above all, a cutthroat war of power, and to start acting like it. 
Now, the res- the speech received little attention at the time. Gingrich was, after all, an obscure, untenured professor whose political career consists of failed congressional bids. But a few months later, he was finally elected to the House of Representatives. He went to Washington, a man obsessed with becoming the kind of leader he had envisioned that day in Atlanta. Now, the GOP was then at its lowest point in modern history. Scores of Republican lawmakers had been wiped out in the aftermath of Watergate, and those who survived seemed, according to Gingrich, sadly resigned to a permanent minority mindset. It was like death, he recalled, of the mood in the caucus. They were morally and psychologically shattered. But Gingrich had a plan. The way he saw it, Republicans would never be able to take back the House as long as they kept compromising with the Democrats out of some high-minded civic desire to keep congressional business humming along, you know, doing the people's business. His strategy was to blow up the bipartisan coalition that were essential to legislating, basically stop governing, then seize on the resulting dysfunction to wage a populist crusade against the institution of Congress itself. His idea, says Norm Ornstein, a political scientist who knew Gingrich at the time, was to build toward a national election where people were so disgusted by Washington and the way it was operating that they would throw the ins out and bring the outs in. Gingrich recruited a ragtag group of young bomb throwers, a group of a dozen congressmen he christened the Conservative Opportunity Society, and they stalked the halls of Capitol Hill searching for trouble and TV cameras. Their high profile was not initially greeted with enthusiasm by the more moderate Republican leadership. They were too noisy, too brash, too hostile to the old guard's cherished sense of decorum. They even looked different, sporting blow-dry pompadours while their more camera-shy elders smeared brill cream on their comb-overs. Gingrich and his crew showed little interest in legislating, a task that was primarily the responsibility of elected officials. Bob Livingston, a Louisiana Republican who had been elected to Congress a year before Gingrich, marveled at the way he rose to prominence by ignoring the traditional path taken by by the new lawmakers. My idea was to work within the committee structure, take care of my district, and just pay attention to the legislative process, Livingston said. But Newt came in as a revolutionary. Now, for revolutionary purposes, the House of Representatives was less a governing body than an arena for conflict and drama, and Gingrich found ways to put on a show. He recognized the opportunity in the newly installed C-SPAN cameras and began delivering tirades against Democrats to an empty chamber, knowing that his remarks would be beamed to viewers across the country. And as his profile grew, Gingrich took aim at the moderates in his own party, much like Goldwater, calling Bob Dole the tax collector for the welfare state. He baited Democratic leaders with all manners of epithets and insults, pro-communist, un-American, tyrannical. In 1984, on one of his floor speeches prompted a red-faced eruption from Speaker Tip O'Neill, who said of Gingrich's attacks, It's the lowest thing I have seen in my 32 years in Congress. The episode landed both of them on the nightly news, and Gingrich, knowing the score, declared victory. I am now a famous person, he gloated to the Washington Post. Now, it's hard to overstate just how radical these actions were at the time. 
Congress had been a volatile place during periods of American history, with fistfights and canings and representatives bellowing violent threats to one another. But by the middle of the 20th century, lawmakers had largely coalesced around a stabilizing set of norms and traditions. Entrenched committee chairs may have dabbled in petty corruption, and Democratic leaders may have pushed around the Republican minority when they were in a pinch, but as a rule, committee reigned. Most members still believed in the idea that the framers had in mind, said Thomas Mann, a scholar who studies Congress. They believed in genuine deliberation and compromise, and they had institutional loyalty. Now, this ethos was perhaps best embodied by Republican minority leader Bob Mitchell, an amiable World War II veteran known around Washington for his aversion to swearing, doggone it, and by Jiminy were fixtures of his vocabulary, as well as a penchant for carpooling and golfing with Democratic colleagues. Now, Mitchell was no way a liberal, but he believed that the best way to serve conservatism and his country was by working honestly with Democratic leaders, pulling legislation inch by inch to the right where he could, and protecting the good faith that made aisle crossing possible. Now, Gingrich was unimpressed. He represented a culture which had been defeated consistently, he said. More importantly, Gingrich thought that the old dynamics that had produced public servants like Mitchell were crumbling and would assist in creating tectonic shifts in American politics, particularly around the issues of race and civil rights. Liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats, two groups that had been well represented in Congress, in his mind, were beginning to vanish, and with them, a cross-party part, cross partnership that had fostered cooperation. Now, this polarization didn't originate with Gingrich, but he sure as hell took advantage of it, as he set out to circumvent the old power structures and build his own. Rather than letting the party bosses in Washington decide which candidate deserved institutional support, he would take control of a group called GOPAC and used it to recruit and train an army of mini-newts to run for office. Now, Gingrich hustled to keep his cause and himself in the press. If you're not in the Washington Post every day, you might not as well exist, he told one reporter. His secret to capturing headlines was simple. He explained to supporters, the number one fact about the news media is they love fights. When you give them confrontations, you get attention. And when you get attention, you can educate. Effective as these tactics were in the short term, they had a corrosive effect on the way cons uh, Congress operated. Gradually, it went from legislating to the weaponization of legislating to the permanent campaign to the permanent war, Mann said. It's like he took a wrecking ball to the most powerful and influential legislator in the world. By 1988, Gingrich's plan to conquer Congress via sabotage was well underway. As his national prof profile had risen, so too had his influence within the Republican caucus. His original quorum of 12 disciples having expanded to dozens of sharp-elbowed House conservatives who looked to him for guidance. Gingrich encouraged them to go after their enemies with catchy, alliterative nicknames, Daffy Dukakis and the Looney Left, and schooled them in the art of partisan blood sport. Though, through GOPAC, he sent out cassette tapes, ask your 
parents about that cassette tapes, folks, and memos uh, to Republican candidates across the country who wanted to, quote unquote, speak like Newt, providing them with careful honed attack lines and creating quite literally a new vocabulary for a generation of conservatives. One memo titled language, a key mechanism of control, included a list of recommended words to use in describing Democrats. Sick, pathetic, lie, anti-flag, traitors, radicals, corrupt. A tactic he decried when he ran for president in 2012. And I hope you will remind your friends and neighbors that Iowa has an opportunity to send a signal that we are sick of negative politics, we're sick of cynical consultants, by simply refusing to vote for any of the candidates who ran negative ads. And I think to the degree that we can convince people that voting for somebody who's been positive, uh, we will actually set change the entire tone of American politics. And I think it's very hard to change Washington as long as we have the kind of political campaigning we currently have and the kind of viciousness and the kind of dishonesty built into our politics that has become standard. And unfortunately, this entire current model is fundamentally wrong, uh, where people pretend not to have anything to do with PACs run by their staff, with money given by their friends. I think we'd be much better off to erase all the current election laws, have a very simple rule. You can give whatever you'd like out of your personal after-tax income as long as you, repay, as long as you report it every evening uh, so everybody knows where the money's coming from. And the candidate then would control the money. The candidate would be responsible for the ads. And overnight, if the candidate had to put their face on the ad, you'd clean up about two-thirds of the negativity because they wouldn't have the courage to put their face in some of this stuff. But back when it worked for him, his goal was to reframe the boring policy debates in Washington as national battle between good and evil, white hats versus black hats, a fight for the very soul of America. Through this prism, any news story could be turned into a wedge. Woody Allen had an affair with his partner's adopted daughter. It fits the Democratic Party platform perfectly, Gingrich stated. A deranged South Carolina woman murdered her two children, a symptom of a sick society, Gingrich chanted, and the only way you can change that is to vote Republican. Gingrich was not above mining the darkest reaches of the far right wing fever swamp for material especially when Deputy White House Counsel Vince Foster committed suicide. Police said the 48-year-old Foster's body was found some distance from his car about 6 p.m. last night at this park just outside Washington, dead of a gunshot wound to the head. He had left his office five hours earlier, saying he would return. Police called it a suicide. Foster, who survived by his wife and three children, had been a friend of the president since their boyhood together in Hope, Arkansas, and had been a law partner of Mrs. Clinton in Little Rock. As the number two person on the Clinton White House legal team, Foster was involved in the president's sometimes rocky judicial appointment process. He also played a role in the decisions that led to the firings at the White House travel office, though an internal White House review of that matter did not criticize him. None of Foster's White House colleagues, including the president, who paid public tribute to him today, had seen anything in his behavior that suggested he was troubled. Gingrich publicly flirted with fin fringe conspiracy theories that suggested he had been assassinated. He took these things that were confined to the margins of the conservative movement and mainstreamed them, said Dave, David Brock, who worked as a conservative journalist at the time covering the various, various Clinton scandals before later becoming a Democratic operative. 
What I think he saw was the potential for using them to throw sand in the gears of Clinton's ability to govern. Despite his growing grassroots following, Gingrich remained unpopular among a certain contingent of congressional Republicans who were disgusted by his tactics. But that started to change when Democrats elected Texas Congressman Jim Wright as Speaker. Whereas Tip O'Neill had been known for working across party lines, Wright came off as a gruff and power-hungry. His efforts to sideline the Republican minority didn't make him any friends among the GOP's mild-mannered moderates. People started asking, who's the meanest, meanest, nastiest son of a bitch we can get to fight back? Remembering Mickey Edwards, a Republican who was then representing Oklahoma in the House. And of course, that was Newt Gingrich. Gingrich unleashed a smear campaign aimed at taking down Wright. He reportedly circulated unsupported rumors about a scandal involving a teenage congressional page and tried to tie Wright to shady foreign lobbying practices. Finally, one allegation gained traction that Wright had used $60,000 in book royalties to evade limits on outside income. Questions about the Speaker's finances have arisen in the past, but he has maintained that he has done no wrong, especially when it comes to his book royalties. I don't know what's improper about it. If if people are willing to pay uh, $6 for the book, and uh, if my publisher is willing to give me three and a quarter, uh, as a matter of fact, it never occurred to me that there was anything wrong with that. It still doesn't. Uh, I have written another book uh, for which uh, Karen McCann and others, I think I got about 40%. Uh, as a matter of fact, I can think of other people. Made a whole lot more money on books. There's a lady who wrote a book called Mayflower Madam, and I'm told that she got a half million dollars. It is this concern over royalties, however, coupled with questions surrounding the Speaker's financial dealings in his Texas district, that is made for an unusual Washington alliance. Just last week, Fred Wertheimer, president of the liberal lobbying group Common Cause, joined the conservative chorus calling for an ethics probe of the speaker. Speaker Wright said in a television interview last night he would be cooperative. As a matter of fact, it would just suit me fine. I, uh, I have nothing to hide. I have violated no rule. I violated no ethical standard. It's all right with me. I, have, um, I haven't done anything that violates the law or the rule or anything unethical. They can look all they want to. Watergate it wasn't, but it was enough to force Wright's resignation and hang Gingrich the scalp he so craved. This episode cemented Gingrich's status as a de facto leader of the GOP in Washington. Heading into the 1994 midterms, he rallied Republicans around the idea of turning Election Day into a national referendum. On September 27th, more than 300 candidates gathered outside the Capitol to sign the Contract with America, a document of Gingrich's creation that outlined 10 bills Republicans promised to pass if they took control of the House. We're here because we are taking the first steps, and we're taking them in a contract with the American people. We've already told the incumbents and the candidates that if we have a majority, if the American people accept this contract, that they can expect to work five days a week in January, six days a week in February and March, and 24 hours a day around the clock towards the end if necessary. But we are going to get to the final recorded votes in the first 100 days on every item. 
While candidates fanned out across the country to campaign on the contract, Gingrich and his fellow Republican leaders in Congress held fast to a strategy of gridlock. As Election Day approached, they maneuvered to block every piece of legislation they could, even those that might ordinarily have received bipartisan support, like a lobbying reform bill, on the theory that voters will blame Democrats for the paralysis. Pundits aghast at the brazenness of the strategy predicted backlash from voters. But few seemed to notice. Even some Republicans were surprised by what they were getting away with. Bill Kristol, then a GOP strategist, marveled at the success of his party's principled obstructionism. And an up-and-coming senator named Mitch McConnell was quoted calling opposing the Democrats' agenda, quote, gives gridlock a good name, end quote. When the 103rd Congress adjourned in October, the Washington Post declared it perhaps the worst Congress in 50 years. Yet, Gingrich's plan worked. By the time voters went to the poll, exit surveys revealed widespread frustration with Congress and a deep appetite for change. Republicans achieved one of the most sweeping electoral victories in modern American history. They picked up 54 seats in the House and seized state legislatures and governorships across the country. For the first time in 40 years, the GOP took control of both houses of Congress. On election night, Republicans packed into a ballroom in Atlanta's suburbs, waving placards that read, Liberals, your time is up, and sporting Rush Limbaugh for President t-shirts. The band played Happy Days Are Here Again, and Gingrich, the next Speaker of the House, the new philosopher king of the Republican Party, told the, took the stage to raucous cheers. With victory in hand, Gingrich did his best to play the statesman, saying he would reach out to every Democrat who wants to work with us, and promising to be Speaker of the House, not Speaker of the Republican Party. But the true spirit of the Republican Revolution was best captured by the event's MC, a local talk radio host in Atlanta who had hitched his star to the newt wagon early on. Grinning out at the audience, he announced that a package had just arrived at the White House with some Tylenol in it. President Clinton, joked Sean Hannity, was about to feel the pain. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what I'm doing here, you have two ways to help out. One, you can make a one-time donation to make this show self-sustaining through either PayPal, Cash App, or Venmo. Check the show notes for details and or links. Or two, you can share us on social media or review us on Apple Podcasts. This will make the algorithm gods promote our show to an unsuspecting public. And you can stalk me on Facebook, facebook.com slash thegenxerpod. Instagram, Threads, and TikTok at the Gen underscore Xer. And if you're old school, email me, mailbag at thegenxerpod.com. And want to read some news, blogs, or just some of my random musings? Check out the blog at thegenxerpod.com. So that is it for me this week. So until next time, if your society has lost the art of irony and nuance, then you need to thank The Great American Shit Show. <laughs> I'm going to go